It was a very cruel scene, executed in an unusual manner. Hey, Crow Coven. Hi, Spicy Pancakes. Hey, Tudor Pooters. <laughs> this is Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. I'm Katie. I'm Tori. So we have our question of the day from Crystal Abel, our little lovely over in our Facebook group, Cruel and Unusual, colon, the group. The group. She wants to know, what true crime case was your gateway drug that got you interested in true crime? You first. I feel like it's just the ones that we, we grew up watching. John Bonet, O.J. Simpson. I remember O.J. more than John Bonet. And then um, fucking Heaven's Gate. For me, it was Jean Bonnet. Yeah. So Jean Bonnet happened in 1996, I think. Mm-hmm. At Christmas. I, I think it was December of 1996. But mm-hmm. if it was 96, I was only five years old. But I, my mom, like, was, I was very yeah. into it. I wasn't much older, but I, I distinctly remember it being on TV. And here's what I don't that. remember: OJ. You don't remember OJ at all? Not one bit. Oh my Not mom then. was just enthralled yeah. i don't know if i was like in school yet or not but i remember she had the trial on yeah all day oh my god do you know what year that was yeah that was um like 95 okay so i would have been even younger mm-hmm. so that's probably why i don't really remember i think it. i was in kindergarten and we only went like half days or something like that so yeah I was that's with right my or every other day I yeah think. so something i don't remember like watching soaps and oj simpson and then um I remember Heaven's Gate. I've always been interested in this stuff. I've never been interested yeah. in Heaven's Gate at all. I just, I, I just rem- I think it's just because I was like seven or eight. And I just yeah. remember it. My parents yeah. didn't censor shit. Yeah. I could watch whatever I wanted, read whatever I wanted, go on the internet. I know that my mom always got so mad that uh, we watched Beavis and Butthead at your house. Yeah. <laughs> like, and we didn't even watch it. It was really Michael. Yeah. And The Simpsons mm-hmm. and all that. Yeah. Yep. But then I read the um, Ed Gein book at like 10 that my dad had. Yeah. So. It was all downhill it from was there just, for you. It was just a thing. Yeah. I don't know. John Bonnet Ramsey just from the moment it happened. I obviously was like five mm-hmm. or six or four or something. I was right around there. And I just obviously didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. But that was one that was just kind of brought up frequently. Yeah. You know. It was huge. So I think that that was the one that I was really like uh fuck like mm-hmm. that's crazy yeah like how did that happen mm-hmm. to this little girl in a safe neighborhood yeah you know in the middle of the night on christmas mm-hmm. you know right yep like it just it should not have happened is what my mind was you know thinking yeah how did that happen and it was just interesting to me yeah so i think that that was really my main segue into all things true crime. Mm-hmm. I remember feeling, I, th- I think especially with Jean Bonnet, not like, wow, how did that happen? I think I just remember thinking like, whoa, you know, like, yeah. hmm. I believed it. Like I didn't, it, there was never any doubt in my mind because even at that young, I, at that young of an age, I knew that bad things happened to kids. Yeah. Like I knew it because I, I experienced I really it. So. Yeah, I yeah, I did not. I was like untouchable. Like, yeah. you know what I mean, like in this bubble. Yeah, it was almost like I kind of like commiserated with her kind of yeah. even at that young because now I was this, like, "Oh, another one. It's yeah. not just me." Yeah. So. Now, this is not obviously a John Bonet episode, but do you have an opinion of who murdered her? Everybody have we thinks Burke. About this? I don't think it was Burke. I think it was Santa Bill. I don't think it was Burke. I really don't. I think the family maybe covered it up. Mhm. I don't know, but I don't think it was him. Why do you think, I mean, I I understand why you think Santa Bill, but what do you think his motive was? Just like that he was a disgusting human being um, or like something else? A lot of men love little girls. A lot, a lot, a lot more than you ever think about or know. A yeah. lot of them do. And she was hypersexualized as a child. I think that's exactly what it was. And I'm sorry if you are a mom to a little girl parading her around on stages or if you were one yourself i don't agree with it no at I really all i don't either it's just fucked up and weird and i feel like it teaches your children mm-hmm. that they need to wear makeup to be beautiful and win things yeah, yeah. and they don't and i hate that yeah. for them but. i don't know i just i don't like it um the garrote that was used on her the evidence of sexual assault i don't think right. it was the family i f- i feel like the family might i don't know 
I feel they're involved like, somehow, I think, but yeah. I think it was after, and I don't think any of them killed her. Yeah. Well, and then there's the unknown male DNA on her underwear. So Right. And they tested the man, the father and the son, right? Yeah. I could see the parents wanting to cover it up if Burke got too rough with her mm-hmm. and hit her. And, you know, she's just a little girl. Right. It wouldn't take that hard of a hit. Right, but he was a little boy, but too. You know at the what same, I mean? Yeah, I but know. at the same time, I don't think that there would be sexual assault. Right. Exactly. And so, a garrote, like, if you, if they showed, like, if there were no other signs of, like, child abuse, really, in the family that we know of, to go yeah. from, like, if you're going to cover up your daughter's death, why fucking tie that around her neck and twist? Like, why? Yeah, and... When you could cover it up in so many other ways. Mm-hmm. And I know that everyone's like, oh, Burke is so weird in interviews. I feel like I would be weird if I grew up in that household as well. Yeah. Because Honestly, number one, I've never watched any of him as an adult, so I don't know. Oh, but. He's a strange man. Yeah. But it's like, um, number one, you were kind of like the outcast when John Bonet was alive. Yeah. And then eventually you knew that people were accusing you. He mm-hmm. was in therapy. Like, I'm sure his parents then doted on him and like kept him in a bubble. Yeah. He's going to be fucking weird, you guys. Yeah. Like, it's just, that's mm-hmm. destiny. And everyone's like, oh, well, that's motive for him to kill her is because she was paraded around and she... No, but that's look motive. At, look at how much more likely it is. Look at how often it fucking happens that a yeah. grown man sexually assaults and murders little girls. It happens a lot. And I feel like, yes, that, but that's motive for him to, like be mean to a sister yeah. or like rivalry. poke fun at her yeah you know or like do stupid kid things yeah. not that it doesn't happen not that siblings don't kill like that yeah. but when they're little it's ha- but it's just look at how much more likely it is that it's it's a grown man yeah all the time yep so yeah there we are <laughs> here we are <laughs> there we are with that <laughs> there's a little mini on john bonnet yeah <laughs> um today we're talking about some lesser known serial killers and i mean lesser known to us that you might know who they are, but they're not ones that you really, that come up in serial killer conversations. And yeah. how often does that happen? A lot when you're us. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I feel like these are have not been done quite as much as your Ted Bundy's and your Ed Gein's yeah. and your Ed Kemper's. We know all that stuff. We already know about it. You it's old news. Too. We'll probably do them eventually. And <laughs> but, I know. <laughs> but today we're not. Right. And I know, at least in my case, I don't think it got the coverage that it deserved because of the marginalized, they were marginalized, the victims, they were gay men, so. Mine were gay men, too. Really? Mm-hmm. But it was, like, early 90s, like, yeah. you didn't talk about that. They didn't so. want people to know, right. you know. No, they, it didn't get the coverage, so that's probably why it's not everywhere today. There's not a lot out there. There wasn't a lot for me to research. Right. So. But I'm not going first. Mm-hmm. You are. So shut the fuck <laughs> up and buckle up, lady. November 23rd, 1945, Dennis Nilsson was born in Scotland, a fun little place. Oh. Mm-hmm. We've got a Scot on the app today. <laughs> he never knew his father, which we know is hard mm-hmm. for a little boy especially. He had very strained and little to no relationships with his siblings, but he did have a great relationship with his grandpa, which oh. is real cute. He spent a lot of time with his grandpa fishing, hanging out, and just being super close. Dennis looked at him as a hero. Oh. hmm When he was only five years old, however, his grandpa died of a heart attack while out fishing. No, grandpa. Uh-huh. Poor grandpa. His mother was a fucking asshole. Mm-hmm. Here's what she did. When Dennis got home from school, his mom was crying, and Dennis said, What's wrong, mom? And then she proceeded to ask Dennis if he wanted to see his grandfather. What? Of course, Dennis was like, oh, my God, yeah, I love my grandpa. I want to see him. He was super excited because Uh. he knew that he had been away fishing. And then his mom said, oh, he's out in the kitchen. So little five-year-old Dennis goes out into the kitchen to find a coffin (gasps) with his grandfather inside of it. No. His grandfather's deceased body. Why was the coffin there? I have no idea. Uh, that's fucking mean. Mm-hmm. Real mean. That's terrible. That's why I felt okay to say she's an asshole. I want to slap her very Upside hard. Upside the head. Oh. Downside the head. All around her head. Oh. His mother later said that Dennis was never the same after this. Go fucking figure. Yeah. Mom. Well. He rejected affection, didn't want to hug people, shied away from people, resented his mother for the attention that she gave to his siblings, and eventually resented his siblings too. He lost the only man who ever made an impact on him. That's sad. Real fucking sad. It's said that Dennis would go down into the water and pretend to drown. Not really pretend, but he would imagine drowning, but he always stayed close enough to the shore. He felt like it brought him closer to his grandfather. 
One day he got too far out and the tide swept him away and he really almost did drown until an older boy came and saved him. He thought that this was his grandfather trying to come and get him. Yeah, could you imagine? When Dennis was 15, he decided he would join the army. During recruitment testing, it was found that his IQ was off the motherfucking charts. Really? Yeah, right, right. Dennis ended up taking up photography as a hobby. He had a need for control, and it's said that photography allowed him to have control, like being able to make his subject stand certain ways and Mm -hmm. adjust the lens and and the lighting and things like that. It makes sense. Um, He just had a very deep-rooted need to be able to control situations, probably because he never could. Yeah. And this was the outlet that he used for that. Now, his sexual orientation was talked about a lot in the Army. Prior to joining, he knew he was attracted to men. He also knew that he would be ridiculed and made fun of, so he just basically convinced himself that the boys he was attracted to had traits similar to his sister, and his love for his sister was manifesting in this way. Okay. So he basically was, like, trying to reason with his sexuality. Mm -hmm. And trying to probably not be as attracted. Exactly. Like, uh, Exactly. Yeah. He had to suppress so fucking much. Once he joined the army, the other men would laugh and talk behind his back about him being gay. I fucking hate that for him. Like, this is Mm pre-killer. Remember that. Yeah. They would joke to each other behind his back, saying homophobic slurs and calling him different names. He and his army, quote-unquote, buddies, because they clearly were not his buddies, Mm -hmm. would drink almost every single night, and when he did so, he would act like he was incapacitated in hopes that one of the guys would take advantage of him. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, he really wanted to express himself with a male, but he did not want to be the one to approach. Well, yeah, because that probably could have gotten him killed. I'm fucking sure. And it did all the time. It still does. Dennis didn't want to make the first move, like I just said, but he acted much more drunk than he was in hopes that one of the guys or multiple guys Mm -hmm. would just mess with him thinking that he was blacked out. Yeah. After serving 11 years in the army, Dennis left and went back to Scotland. After his brother, fucking piece of shit, outed him to their mother, he moved away over to London and joined the police force. Now, that brother had no idea for sure if Dennis really was gay, but since he had been with him and stood up for gay rights, he assumed that he was Mm -hmm. and told their mom, and that's what caused Dennis to flee. Dennis loved thinking about dying and death. He would make himself up to look dead. Like, he would literally, like, put on, yeah, pale makeup, like, blue tints to his face. He would make his lips blue. Oh, Dennis. the picture. He would then admire his reflection and how dead he looked. He also would lay down with his eyes closed for, like, fucking hours on end. Me too. Just pretending he was dead. I do that a lot, actually. And I don't have to have makeup to look dead. (laughs) Same. Sometimes I pretend like I'm sleeping so nobody fucking talks to me. (laughs) All right. Sorry. The only other hobby that Dennis had, aside from pretending to be dead Mm -hmm. was going to gay clubs after visiting the gay clubs for a while he decided that he wanted to share his life with someone he met a man during one of his nights out who was 20 years old and his name was david now dennis brought david back to his flat reminder we're over in london and they spent the night learning all about each other like a cute little first date oh however the next morning when david was leaving dennis was like nope Mm. Yeah, I would rather you not leave. Can you please just move in with me? Dennis. (laughs) But here's the thing. Yeah, Denny, you're getting a little bit like pushy. But the thing is, David was was unemployed Mm -hmm. and he needed somewhere to live. So he just fucking accepted. Okay. Yeah, the (laughs) the two ended up getting a ground floor flat together. The space needed a lot of restoration work, but the two were up for it. David stayed jobless. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) that's what I wrote. (laughs) And spent his days fixing up the flat and Dennis worked. They never had really defined their relationship. Dennis said that they had an incredibly platonic relationship. Okay. Which who knows? Yeah. One year into the relationship or friendship or whatever they called it, things got a little bit strained. David left Dennis and he was just like, bye, my guy. And it seemed very easy for him to just walk away. And that fucking killed Dennis. Oh, I'm sure. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. Starting in January of 1983, residents of a shared flat complex started reporting blocked drains in their flats. It wasn't from a big poop. I'm just going to let you know that right now. Wasn't the damn tampons. (laughs) 
don't flush your feminine hygiene products <laughs> Please down. do not flush. Oh, yeah. my God. Why? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's an issue that we have. Uh, the landlord called in a plumber. And it said that the plumber said that he had never smelled anything worse in his entire life. Hmm. And he's a plumber. Decomp. Yeah. The plumber couldn't find anything wrong. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it smelled really bad, but whatever. So, about a month later, on February 8th of 1983, he came back to do another inspection because there were still complaints. During this inspection, he came across what he described as butcher's prepared meat in the drain. They ended up leaving the meat there until the morning, but in the morning, all of the meat was gone. Meat in the meat. drain. Yeah. Um, Didn't, weren't they like, how does meat get in the drain? I'm sure that there was a little <laughs> more to it. Yeah. Um, the plumbers went on to continue to look for the source of the issue mm -hmm. because there were still issues going on. And they eventually found out there was a blocked pipe and it was being blocked by a bit of flesh. Oh. Yeah. The plumbers were like, oh no, ew, what? So they called the police and it was found that this was human fucking flesh in the pipe. Uh. The police were like, uh, okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, we know that someone inside clearly committed the crime because it's yeah. coming from the pipes. Like, obviously. Um, they did a little bit more groundbreaking detective work and they found <laughs> that whoever shoved the flesh down the pipe had to be on the middle or the top floor. So it, it went like ground floor, middle floor, top floor. It, it wasn't like, you know, how some, how apartment, some apartment complex have like multiple apartments on each floor. Yeah, yeah, this was yeah. just one, two, three. They found out that no one lived on the middle floor. So it had, dun, 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 had to be the person on the top floor. Okay. So, since no one lived in the middle flat, the police were like, aha, <laughs> the top flat. It's you. It's you, Mary. <laughs> Mary Mellon. <laughs> it's you. Turns out a man named Dennis Nelson was renting the top flat. And we all know Denny Boy. You we don't were just say. talking about him. You don't say. Uh -huh, the irony. Denny. God. Dennis Nelson. You? <laughs> Could it be you, Dennis? With the pipe? In the and top flat? <laughs> oh, my God. When police went to question... I like how we can just jump right back into it. When police went to question Dennis about the mysterious flesh in the pipe, he wasn't home. Oh, mm -hmm. boy. So instead, they spoke to the other tenants of the flat, the ground floor people. And they said that they had actually seen Denny Boy that morning. Dennis reportedly, was outside fucking around and he appeared to be very distraught. He was like red in the face, almost maroon in the face. He was sweating. His arms were very dirty, like from the tips of his fingers up to like above his elbow, almost like he had shoved them up a pipe. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Eventually. Curiouser and curiouser. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, Denny Boy gets home and police approach him under the notion that they were dealing with blocked drains. Only like a half mm. lie, you know. And Dennis was like, oh, I've never heard of police to be worrying about a blocked drain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, Dennis invites the police into his top floor flat to talk. The police officers that went into his flat reported the stench to be fucking overbearing. Mm. How do you live with that? Uh Huh. Ugh. When police told him that human remains were found blocking the drain pipes from of the flat, Dennis replied, Oh my god! How awful! Oh. <laughs> and that's exactly how I said it. Maybe he said, Oh my god, how awful. Oh my god! One of the detectives challenged him by asking where the rest of the bodies were. He wasn't really expecting much from Dennis, but he did want him to know that they were onto his shit. Because by default, he had to have been the one who stuffed the bodies right. or the flesh, you know? Yeah. But what happened next shocked the detective. What? Dennis looked him dead in the eyes and told him something along the lines of, Eh, okay, you got me. They're in two bags in my wardrobe in the other room. <gasps> really? Yep. And then he proceeded to give them the keys to unlock the wardrobe. Oh. And sure enough, two large bags sat inside. Wow. They obviously immediately took Dennis into custody, who then told the detectives that there were 15 or 16 bodies wow. in the two bags. Wow. His flat was searched by police and torso and chest tissue was recovered from the scene. A pathologist commented once studying the body that he made incredibly precise cuts to the body. 
the pathologists believe Dennis had a shit ton of practice. Mm-hmm. 15 or 16 victims seems pretty damn believable. Right, yeah. That's enough to learn how to do it yep. the right way, I guess. The right way. The correct way. Yeah. Dennis told police that in a drawer in the bathroom and in a chest in the living room, there were other legs, skulls, bones, flesh, and general oh general remains of other humans. So he just hung on to them and hung out with them. Literally. Wow. Once looked into, it was found that these body parts were that of three different men in this house. Okay. Dennis had a huge issue with media outlets covering the case once everything was outed. Uh, like, remember the need for control that he had? Yeah. If any details were wrong, he would have a fucking freak out. Mm. Which I think is why he confessed to so much. Yeah. You know? The plumber who was there ended up selling the story of finding the body parts for 300 pounds to the media. Oh, wow. Let's talk a little bit about the murders. It's said that the first murder he committed was on December 30th of 1978. Dennis told authorities that he met Stephen Dean Holmes in a gay bar. The next morning, Dennis woke up before Stephen, and he had an urge to strangle him. Oh. So Dennis went and got a tie, like a necktie, and he proceeded to strangle him until he was fully unconscious. Once he knew he was totally out, he got a bucket of water and drowned him in it. Stephen succumbed to his injuries, and he was only 14 years old. No. What? Yep. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. It's said that Dennis laid down next to Stephen after killing him and felt an overall peace and tranquility, which is a quote from Eleanor Neal. He didn't dispose of the boy's body right away. Instead, he propped him up on furniture, Mm. kept him around the house. He would tell him about his day after he came home from work. He would ask about his day. It was just really fucked up. He really did hang out with them. Yeah. He said that he practiced necrophilia, but never penetration. All right. Yeah. Kenneth Akendon was Dennis's second murder. Dennis confessed to strangling him while they were having sex. Kenneth was actually reported missing and widely talked about at the time, which wasn't the case for the majority of his victims. Mm -hmm. Another source says that he strangled him while he was listening to a CD. So there was differing stories there. Okay. Now, Martin Duffy, a 16-year-old runaway, met Dennis at a train station. Oh, they were young boys. Yeah. Yep. Dennis ended up strangling him after inviting him over to his flat and drowning him in the sink. William Billy Sutherland was working as a sex worker in the London area and was the father of one child. Dennis confessed to strangling him, but says most of the incident was a blur for him. Dennis murdered six more men in similar ways, like strangling and drowning. A lot of the men were unidentified, men that he could not remember, and that's what Dennis told authorities. His 11th murder was a man who had a tattoo around his neck like little dashes that said cut here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. The man was very confident, saying how tough he was. He liked to fight. However, when Dennis got him drunk, he killed him, hung his naked body in the house for an entire day. Wow. Did he cut here? I don't know. Mm. Yikes. Dennis attempted to murder another young man. However, this young man, who was not identified in any of the sources I was using, was able to somehow get the fuck out of his grasp while he was being strangled. Good. The man called and reported the situation to the local police, but they didn't bother to do anything about it. Police said that it was just a domestic dispute between, quote-unquote, homosexual lovers. So, like, in other words, they didn't give a shit. Right. Malcolm Barlow was the next unfortunate person to come into contact with Dennis. On September 18th of 1981, Dennis ended up finding Malcolm hurt, calling an ambulance for him and making sure he got taken to the hospital. When Malcolm got out, he returned to Dennis's home to thank him, and Dennis invited him in for dinner and drinks. Malcolm was then murdered sometime later that night. Why even help him? That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. You know? It's like he made sure he was taken care of. So he could kill kill him. him. Yeah. That's fucked. Yep. Wow. Now, I think it's a, it's kind of important to note how he disposed of the bodies. He kept them around for a week or two at a time. Mm-hmm. And then when he was ready to move on to his next victim, he would dismember them and put them under the floorboards in his flat. God. He ended up like burning all of the body parts, okay. like in the middle of the night or really early in the morning. So he would like stuff them somewhere, then take them out and do something with them? Yeah. So he wasn't, I, he probably would have kept them in, underneath the floorboards forever had he not moved. Right. Yeah. But when he moved, he knew like he couldn't take all of okay. them with him. I was just wondering how far the like uh, yeah. delusion was here. Yeah. So um, when, he, when he did move, he met a guy in a bar in Soho. 
As usual, he invited him to come back to his place, and the next morning, upon waking, the student couldn't even remember anything that happened the previous night, so, like, he was drugged, probably. Hmm. He ended up having bruises around his neck a few days later because he got out, and he went to his doctor. The doctor said that he had been strangled, and somehow he lived to tell about it. The doctor Um. urged the boy to report it, but the student decided against it, afraid his sexual orientation would be outed. God. It seemed like about a handful or so that we know of actually got away from him, which is nice, but he killed way more than that. Right, but still. Now, John Howlett was not so lucky. In December of 1981, he was murdered by Dennis. John proved to be an incredibly strong man, which pissed Dennis off. Mm -hmm. He almost got away, but eventually Dennis was able to drown him, holding his head underwater for, like, around five minutes. He dismembered his body and hid the body parts around his home, even flushing some of them down the toilet. Mm. Dennis then went on to murder Graham Allen, who was a homeless man in the area. He dismembered his body similarly how he dismembered John's. Dennis's final victim was Stephen Sinclair. He was a drug addict who met Dennis and got him to buy him a hamburger. Oh. Yeah. Dennis, as fucking always, offered to bring him back to his home. He gave him alcohol and drugs and then strangled him. He dismembered Stephen's body, and then this is the body that Plummer's found. Okay. Now let's talk about trial and sentencing, because this is all from Dennis. Like, Dennis told police all of this. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to say a direct quote from Murderpedia. Quote, on October 24th of 1983, Dennis pleaded diminished responsibility as a defense in order to seek a verdict of guilty to manslaughter, but was convicted of six murders and two attempted murders instead. He was sentenced to life imprisonment on November 4th of 1983. Ten years later, in 1993, he was given permission to give a televised interview from prison. Yikes. Nilsen's minimum term was set at 25 years by the trial judge, but the home secretary later imposed a whole life tariff, which meant he would never be released. Good. Mm -hmm. In 2006, he was denied any further requests for parole, end quote. So Dennis is currently at a maximum security prison in Yorkshire. He's just been a complete fucking ass while in prison, um, Mm -hmm. which really probably shouldn't like surprise you but he just gives the authorities a hell of a time god um one of those yeah i just uh, i don't know but um he wrote an autobiography called the history of a drowning boy isn't Mm. that disgusting yeah Oh, and, yeah, because the, yes. the childhood stuff with drowning and all yep. that. Yep, and then, he, and then that. he drowned people. Yeah. Um, this is another quote. In 2003, he brought a further judicial review over a decision not to allow him to publish the autobiography. So, like, they're not allowing him to Wow, that's probably for the better. It, which is wonderful. Yeah. And Man. that is the terrifying, disgusting, horrifying, terrible story of Dennis Nelson. Wow, that's crazy, though. I didn't know anything about Dennis. I googled yeah. him to see if I did, and I didn't, so I, I didn't, I didn't read never, anymore. <laughs> yeah, I had never heard about him, but it's very, it shows how, like, deeply rooted his issues were. Mm-hmm. It's like he was so pissed off. Like, I just can't, like, yeah. it's just so sad. Yeah. So, mine, we really still don't know what his motivation was. Uh-huh. Like, he... That's maddening, too. Seemed to have... Yeah, and he's he's never really talked about it. Mm-hmm. He seemed to have a normal childhood, which I don't really get into that, because there's not much to talk about. Yeah. But um, there's really no clear, like, motivator. So, this is the last call killer. Ooh, okay. In 1992, sanitation workers were doing their thing, picking up garbage on the New Jersey Turnpike, and everything was fine. It was like a normal day of work, like any other day, until a worker picked up this green plastic trash bag and noticed it had some unusual heft to it Mm, when he picked it up. A little hefty. Yeah, it was a hefty bag, no pun intended. (laughs) The bag kind of like rounded when he picked it up, Uh like he thought maybe it's like a pumpkin or something he thought it was just really weird so he decided to be a little looky-loo he got a little curious yeah and he decided to take a peek inside a little nosy nancy if yep. you will yeah so he a opened fertile myrtle <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> okay sorry <laughs> so he took a peek inside the bag and turns out it was not a pumpkin no it was the severed head of a man They called the police, because that's what you do, and when the police got there, they found more body part filled trash bags. One had legs inside of it, just the two legs. 
one had two halves of a torso, like upper torso and lower yeah. torso cut that way. And it had the arms in that bag, too. And one of them contained blood-soaked sheets, a oh God. shower curtain, latex gloves, like bloody gloves, the package that the like gloves came in. Like the original package, mm-hmm. yeah. And a bloody handsaw. Oh. So, on the dismembered man's wrists and ankles, they found ligature marks. They also found his wallet, though, which is strange because usually, you know, if you're going to kill someone, you, you don't really want them identified right, right. away. But he, he just threw the wallet right in. But it was good because they were able to ID him. He was 57-year-old Thomas Mulcahy, and he was stabbed to death before being dismembered, stuffed into these bags, and dumped off the side of the road like trash. The ME also noted that Thomas's body parts were thoroughly washed before being disposed of. I hate that. Yeah. So that shows some kind of like, I mean, it's ritualistic. Yeah. Right. It's, uh, I don't know. It's creepy as fuck, honestly. Yeah. I think if I ever did that, I would just not wash them. It would just be gone. Right. I, I wouldn't want to wash them. Right. But I think it's, I feel like it's a way that he could be like intimate, you know, like yeah. with the, I don't know. I don't know, man. They learned from his wife that Thomas, the dismembered man, he had been in New York City for a business trip. He was an executive for an information company in Massachusetts. He'd been married to his wife for over 30 years, and they had four kids together who were all like young adults at this point. I think the youngest was like 18. So they were able to trace Thomas's credit card activity, and his last transaction was at an ATM in New York. New York City, two nights before his body parts were found. There were also witnesses that placed him in the townhouse bar, and that was an upscale gay bar in Manhattan. So Thomas's wife explained to police that there was a point in their marriage when Thomas began having sexual relations with other men, or at least experimenting. Witnesses say he was pretty drunk at the bar, and that was consistent with the Emmy's findings. He was His blood alcohol level was over the legal limit. And he was also talking with a brown-haired white man, but no one knew who the guy was. No one could tell them if Thomas left the bar with this man. They were, however, able to get a composite sketch made of this guy. And that just blows my mind, because like... I, for one, would never be able to, like, remember yeah. this random guy to bar or be able to give enough detail to make right. a sketch. Never. Right. But then again, this sketch looks pretty generic, like any other brown-haired white sure. dude. There's really nothing, like, special that stands out or distinguishing characteristics. I don't know. So they put this sketch out there, but they didn't really get anywhere with it. They didn't get any hits. Nobody called about it. The biggest clue they really had to run with was the package that the latex gloves came in. From the price sticker, they knew that the gloves were purchased at a CVS in Staten Island, but that really doesn't leave them anywhere because there's no date of purchase or time of purchase. There's over half a million people living in Staten Island. So the trail on Thomas's murder went cold until about a year later when a man driving along Crow Hill Road in Manchester Township, New Jersey, noticed an arm sticking out of a garbage bag. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. These body parts were found in very much the same fashion as Thomas's were. Six green trash bags, two legs, two arms, two halves of a torso, and a head. This time it was the body of 44-year-old Anthony Marrero. Police ran his name through their database, and they found that Anthony had a record. He was a sex worker in the gay community, and he had disappeared on May 6, 1993, when he went to meet up with a potential client near a bus terminal. Did that client happen to be our boy? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony was stabbed to death. He had ligature marks on his wrists and ankles. He was dismembered post-mortem, and his body parts were washed clean. Clearly, they connected Anthony's murder to Thomas's because of the signature. And how far apart were these murders? About 10 months. Okay. They found shopping bags at the scene of Anthony's murder, and they were traced back to stores in Staten Island, but they had no prints, no DNA, nothing that could point them anywhere. Zero suspects, only that unsuccessful composite sketch. One clue they had to work off of was the way these men were dismembered. Their body parts weren't just hacked off all willy-nilly through the bone. Mm -hmm. Their joints were pulled apart, and the killer cut through cartilage. Hmm. The cuts were precise, and this person knew exactly where and how to do this, and that led investigators to believe that in order for their suspect to have this knowledge, they probably worked in the medical field. Still not a lot to go on, but it was something. 
Another thing they found was that one of those shopping bags from where they found Anthony's body was printed with a logo that said President's Choice. They were able to narrow down where these bags were used, like what store it would have come from, and they found that they were only used at a handful of stores, and one of those stores was very close to the same CVS the latex gloves came from, from Thomas's crime scene. Yeah. So one would assume that the suspect would either live or work in that neighborhood. They were also able to lift some prints from that bag, and they entered them into the national database, but there were no hits. So things kind of go cold again. By this point, things were getting scary in the gay community. Like, I couldn't even imagine. No. Like, there's this psychopath out there. He's just roaming freely, dismembering men. Like, it had to have been terrifying. Like, sex workers, that is their livelihood. Yeah. And you don't know who you're going to get. Right. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. you are probably worried every single time yeah that's that you get a client mm-hmm. that it's going to be him yeah even just like walking the streets like to go out yeah they right. were scared and you don't know if this murder is someone you're talking to exactly or someone you already knew a friend it, it had to have been so scary on july 29th 1993 just over a month after anthony's body was found A 56-year-old man from Manhattan named Michael Sakara was at a bar that he went to all the time called the Five Oaks Piano Bar. It was about time for last call, like 3 a.m.-ish, and a white male sat down next to Michael and started talking to him. According to the bartender, who had never seen this man before, he introduced himself to Michael, and it was mentioned that he was a nurse at St. Vincent's Hospital. Okay. That night at the bar with that man was the last time Michael was seen alive. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. On July 31st, a local business owner in Haverstraw, New York, about 12 miles from the city, was getting ready to open his store for the day, and he looked over and noticed a trash can outside was like more full than it should have been. When he went to check it out he found human remains there was no doubt that this was the work of the same killer the seven body parts were in trash bags washed down and dumped now the bartender that saw this man with michael did recall michael saying like this is so and so she couldn't like remember the name she said it was like a really common name that didn't stand out but she recalls him saying he was a nurse at saint vincent's she did remember his face and so they were able to make a new composite sketch from her first-hand account but it doesn't look a lot different from the first one. It's just another white guy with brown hair. The hair is kind of puffy or like thick looking in both of them, but yeah, nothing really stands out. Like it could have been there anyone. There could have been a million men like it's that. In, it's a huge you know? city. Yeah. It's a huge city. When detectives asked around at St. Vincent's Hospital, they were pointed to a male nurse who actually did kind of look like the second composite sketch. Like I looked at the side by side and uh-huh. I'm like, whoa. But his prints didn't match the ones they lifted from Anthony's crime scene. This got them thinking, like, if this killer is going to introduce himself to people like that, he would probably lie about where he works. Yeah. You know, like, why come right out with it? From the way the bodies were dismembered, though, they were sure that he had to be in the medical field. So they distributed that composite sketch to all of the local hospitals in Staten Island to see if they could get a hit. But nothing happened. Once again, the case was getting cold, and the murders seemed to have stopped for eight years they thought, well, maybe he's in jail now for something else. Maybe yeah. he's dead. Maybe he's just gotten better at killing, right. being more careful. They didn't really know what the fuck was going on. But in 1999, Thomas Mulcahy, the first victim, uh-huh. his wife called the police to ask, like, what the fuck's going on? Right. You know, are there any leads? What's being done? This kind of prompted them to take a harder look into these murders. And they knew that up in Toronto, they were getting all crazy cool with their fingerprint technology. Oh. They were using something called vacuum metal deposition. Don't ask me what it is, because I don't know. Police shipped some of those old garbage bags from the crime scenes to O Canada for further analysis. They were able to pull some really clear full prints, and a task force was created to finally catch this guy. Mm -hmm. So they're all excited. They got these prints, so they entered them into the database again, but they got nothing. Oh, how cute. Love that. We love you, Canada. (laughs) One of the detectives then had like a light bulb moment. He decided to send copies of these fingerprints to authorities in all 50 states because apparently not all states enter offender prints into the national database. I wonder why and that I is. And I think that's stupid. Do they still do it like that? Do you know? I didn't look that up. I'm I would not love sure. to know. But I don't know if it's like they weren't required to or I'm sure. there was like some sort of like a backlog 
Oh, you know maybe, what I mean? But I I'm know. sure that if they weren't required to, they didn't. Right. It's more work, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But doing this was their last shot to solve these murders and get justice for these men. So a detective up in Maine got a copy of these fingerprints. Okay. Okay. She was like, yeah, of course. Like, I'll run them and see if anything comes up. But of she, course like, she was. She was not expecting. I mean, she was happy to be helpful. But she was said she was not expecting anything to happen. Yeah. She really didn't. But something did happen. 30 possible matches popped up. 30? 30. 30, like 3-0. Yeah. Possible matches. Wow. She did a side-by-side comparison of all 30 possible matches, which that just seems really tedious and time-consuming, and it would make me want to fling myself from a cliff. Especially because that wasn't like her, like she was basically just doing it to help out, right? Yeah. 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 But then once she saw like, oh, there might be some matches, I think she got kind of excited and, you know this is exciting to do it i mean i'm sure it is for her yeah but she fucking did it and she found a match she got this match like authorized by someone else you know you have to have like two sets of eyes to make sure it's like a true match i guess the prince belonged to a man named richard rogers okay in 1973 so this is why his fingerprints were on file in maine Mm -hmm. in 73 he was a grad student at the university of maine And that year, he was charged with murdering his roommate with a hammer. No. What? He rolled the body up in a plastic tent and left it on the side of the road. Richard Rogers claimed self-defense, and he said the roommate wanted to have sex with him and things got violent, but he was acquitted of all charges. Of course Mm -hmm. he was. After that, Richard got his nursing degree and moved to New York. His nursing degree? Mm -hmm. He murdered someone, Mm -hmm. and now he's supposed to be saving lives. Mm -hmm. No. And he was saving lives. No. For He worked at the same hospital. Sorry. No. I'll, I'll keep going. During the murders of Thomas, Anthony, and Michael, Richard was working at the Mount Sinai Medical Center as a surgical assistant. Mount Sinai is a big hospital. He still worked there in the ICU, mind you. He also had worked in the children's ward. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No. Yep. Yep. I'm very (laughs) adamant. I know. No. I know. I know. So in 2001, when this was going down, he was working in the ICU and he was arrested at the hospital on May 28th of that year. And he was held on a $1 million bond. Wow. Yeah. Honey. (laughs) I bet he couldn't pay that. (laughs) No. When detectives talked to the hospital staff, it came out that Richard was off work on the days these men disappeared and he was off work immediately after. So, hmm, hmm, little obvious there. A little bit. Now, Richard Rogers was 100% one of those, oh no, he would never hurt anyone types of killers. Of course, like so many people that knew him were like, oh God, no, Richard wouldn't hurt a fly. He was described as being mild mannered, normal, thoughtful. He had goals, he had a good social life, good habits. He owned a co op on Staten Island, and a neighbor even said he was the kind of neighbor that everyone wished they had. He yeah. was kind, courteous, which probably explains why these men felt comfortable enough to leave bars with him. Right. You know exactly. what I mean? Like a charmer. He wasn't like somebody who you were like, oh, God, no. Yeah. That guy's yeah. Weird. No, like apparently he gave off good vibes and was just like a normal guy. Normal. I mean, he wasn't normal, but Quote, unquote. that's how he came off. Rick Unterberg, who was the house piano player at the townhouse bar, said that Richard was easily forgettable and dull. I feel like I'm described like that often. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> Rick said, quote, just bland. The only reason I remember him is because he hung out at the piano, end quote. <laughs> like, okay, sir. Yeah. I really hope that you were the most interesting thing. Mm. Another townhouse bar regular, Patrick Henry, had known Richard for over 12 years, and he told the New York Times that Richard was a, quote, lovely fellow, end quote. He liked antiques and money. There were a few times when Richard pretended to be a descendant of this wealthy, like, aristocratic New York City family. He also liked to dismember bodies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Did you know that? So that was either, I mean, that was either a delusion or just a lie to, like, bolster his ego. I don't know. But Patrick also said that Richard was a do-gooder. He would run errands and go shopping for HIV-positive men who who were homebound and couldn't get out. Patrick said he was the kind of guy, like, you could trust with your ATM card. But would these guys twice. be targets at all? I feel his? like no. Because I feel like so he would... weird. Men that he didn't know who were, like, out of town. Or yeah. in town from out of town. On <laughs> a business. You know? Like, yeah. he wouldn't have hurt people he knew for some reason. I don't know. 
but police started doing some heavy digging into Richard's past and they uncovered a sealed court case from 1998. From what they could gather, it looked like he was arrested and charged with drugging, tying up, and beating a 47-year-old man in his apartment on Staten Island. Uh -uh. The DA said he couldn't comment or wouldn't comment or give them any more info since the records were sealed, but everything they could see suggested that the charges had either been dropped or he was acquitted on that one. Oh. So I don't know if that means, like, he was fingerprinted in this case, but the fingerprints were sealed too. Or, like, because surely they would have taken fingerprints for that. So, I don't don't know. But that would have been fucking helpful. Richard was also connected to another murder case from 1991. A 54-year-old investment banker named Peter S. Anderson was in Manhattan for work, and he had recently separated from his wife after coming out as gay. He went to the townhouse bar on May 3rd of that year, and several days later, his dismembered body parts were found in trash bags near a rest stop in Pennsylvania. He was beaten, stabbed, and his dismembered penis was shoved down his throat. Ew. So, this case wasn't talked about a lot in all the research I did, and I don't know if it's because like it wasn't connected back then until later. Yeah. Because it was a different state or what? I don't know. We know police didn't always like communicate with each other like they should have and still don't sometimes. But two of his other victims were found in different states too. So either way, Richard was not charged with this particular murder. He was charged with the murders of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero. He refused to cooperate. He lawyered up immediately. His trial didn't begin until 2005. Wow. Yeah. It lasted a month, and Richard Rogers was found guilty of all charges. Good. At his sentencing in 2006, he was slapped with a maximum, two consecutive life terms, plus an additional 10 years for hindering the investigation by disposing of the bodies. Oh, okay. So he was already getting up there in age, so it's like he's never getting out. How old was he again? He went at trial, I think he was in his 60s. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So I just have this really good quote from the judge at the trial. Judge, it's C-I-T-T-A, Sitta, Sitta. But he was quoted, (laughs) he was quoted as saying, quote, They are separate victims, separate and distinct times. Separate crimes and separate punishments are not only allowed under our law, but demanded in this case. To do less would diminish the horror, end quote. To Richard, the judge said, quote, You are an evil human being. It is difficult, even in today's world, where there is war and there is death and destruction, to imagine what takes place in the mind of a human being that would cause them to do what you did to these two human beings. I will do everything within my power to make sure that you never walk free again, that you die in some hole in some prison without ever having freedom again, end quote. Good. Good for this judge. I like him. (laughs) Yeah. Richard Rogers is serving his time in a maximum security prison in Trenton, New Jersey. He's not eligible for parole until 2066, when he would be 116 years old. Thank God. He'll mm-hmm. never see the light of day. Yeah. Love it. Yep. So there's not a ton out there because he never gave anything up. Yeah. Yeah. He never told So he was the anything. complete opposite in that way mm-hmm. of Dennis yeah. Nelson. Yep. Yep. Wow. But they both got maximum, maximum, mm-hmm. maximum, maximum. Thank in God. Maximum. In maximum. They got maxi and maxi. For Those sure. are asshole men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were. That was terrible. I hated even researching him. I know. He was just like, ugh. I know. Ugh. 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 Hate it. Just Ugh. <laughs> Katie, what are you reading, watching, and listening? <laughs> I did start reading our book club book, The Prettiest uh-huh. Star by Carter Sickles. Sickles? Mm-hmm. Sickles? Sickles? I, th- I feel like I would say Sickles. Sickles, yeah, yeah. Because Sickles would be unfortunate. Uh-huh. It's really good. It's really beautifully written so, so far. I'm beautifully yeah. written. I'm not very far into it. No, I don't I. think we have a time frame for this book club. So if you're going to read it with us, just read it yeah, whenever it was, you want. It like eventually it would be nice to get like a, one book a month. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. But we started this one a little bit later too. We did. Yeah. So and if there's you're going that... with us. Just take your time. Yeah. Because that's what we're gonna do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I also started listening to a book here and there when I have time. Um, It's called Rattle by Fiona Cummins. And it's a thriller. She's a detective. She, it's kind of like, it's creepy. It could keep you up if you're sensitive to that kind of stuff. Ooh, I love. Yeah. And then I'm still just watching Criminal Minds at night, but I'll Be Gone in the Dark starts tonight. I'm so 
fucking what excited. That's on, um, it's on HBO. HBO. Okay, mm-hmm. yes. Oh my god, I was so excited. And um, <laughs> Dawn commented on something yesterday, and she's like, it's tonight, it's tonight. I'm like, yay, I didn't even know it was tonight. And she commented, she's like, it's tomorrow. <laughs> uh, that's alright, but I'm so excited for but this. But it's here now, and Can't that's all that matters. You. The book is so fucking good. If you haven't read I'll Be Gone in the Dark, read it. I had tears streaming down my face. Yeah. At more than one part. Oh, my God. So fucking good. So, yeah. Legendary. I'm excited to see um, my boyfriend, Paul Holes. I'm obsessed with him. I have a hot hot for holes sticker on my laptop right now that you can Uh see. And her hole is very hot. My hole is so hot. For Paul. We've met Billy. We just need to meet Paul now. Yeah. It will be complete. It'll be complete. (sighs) Okay. Okay, What about you? I am also reading The Prettiest Star. Also not that far into it. Also, I'm trying to make my way through an arc from Candy Steiner called Make Me Hate You. It's a great book. I just don't have time. (laughs) And story of my life. Yeah. I got all my shit ready for my two releases that are coming up. And I'm not watching anything until tonight, obviously. Hopefully I'll be able to watch it. Maybe tomorrow. That's kinda late for you. You might just need to like it really is. DVR it. Yeah, true. <laughs> um that's really all I've got. Yeah, we've I've been, been so busy with the book hard. stuff and the podcast stuff and Yeah. The- Alright guys, if you want to send us an email. You can do that at cruelandunusualthepod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Instagram is at cruelandunusualthepod. I tweet <laughs> at cruelunusualpod. That was forceful. I, P. I popped the P. You popped your Honey. P. Mm-hmm. If you want to see our source material and shit like that, you can go to www.cruelinkmedia.com. Hey. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's very unfortunate for you to hear. <laughs> Come join us in our Facebook group. That is Cruel and Unusual, the group. It's popping in there. Post whatever you want in there, guys. It's our own little circle of life and friendship and happiness and, and murder. And murder. <laughs> you can check out our Patreon and our merch. That's in our link tree. Well, it's posted everywhere. So there you go. There you have it. It's real fun. It's a good time. We'll be seeing you. (laughs) Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye.